Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today, Reformation Sunday, is a great day to talk about the doctrine of justification. Justification is the teaching upon which the church either stands or falls. Justification is that fundamental truth found in God's word explaining how it is we are justified before God, how it is we are considered righteous in God's sight. In other words, justification is what Christianity is all about because it's all about how we are saved by Jesus Christ. Now, in the time before the Reformation, more than 500 years ago, so many people were confused about how they were justified, how they were made righteous in God's sight. They thought that they had to be good enough, that they had to perform enough good works to be saved, that they earned their way into heaven by their good deeds. The problem with that kind of thinking, of course, is our sin. We know that because of our sin, we can't ever be good enough to earn our salvation or to earn eternal life. But the Reformation rediscovered and reproclaimed the good news of the gospel. It broke open what God's word clearly teaches, like we heard in our epistle reading today. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are saved, we are justified, not by our works, but by God's works for us. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Our gospel reading today from Matthew 11, it presents a somewhat challenging reading for us to understand. Particularly, did you hear what Jesus said right at the end of it? It ended with this puzzling statement from Jesus when he says, Wisdom is justified by her deeds. So you hear the word justified in there. You hear by her deeds in there. Isn't it an odd thing to say, especially on a Reformation Sunday, the day we celebrate being justified by grace through faith, that something is justified by deeds? Well, the truth is, when we take time to understand what Jesus is saying and why he's saying it, we find that this is actually the perfect thing to hear on a Reformation Day. But first, let's back up just a little bit and set the stage, set the context for what this reading is all about. First of all, this section of Matthew's Gospel, uh, particularly chapter 11, is all about John the Baptizer. At the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus has an interaction with some of the disciples sent to him from John. After which, Jesus then turns to the crowd and begins to ask them about John. He says to the crowd, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Were you going out to see some strange guy who eats and dresses oddly and says provocative things? Or were you going out to see a prophet, one who is in the great line of prophets? Jesus says, yes, and more than a prophet, John was the one who was chosen to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the way of the Messiah. In fact, Jesus says in verse 11, right before our gospel reading begins today, that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. And yet, this great man was sitting in prison. And that's why John had to send his disciples just to communicate with Jesus in the first place. 
And it wouldn't be long before John would suffer a humiliating death at the hands of a vindictive queen named Herodias. Doesn't that seem like such a weak and foolish way for someone like John to die? John is often described, Jesus describes him, as coming in the spirit of Elijah, who was also a great prophet and who also had his life hunted down by a queen, Queen Jezebel. And all for what? Why were John and Elijah treated this way? What did they do? Well, nothing, except to be faithful to God and to his word. All of this then gives the context for our gospel reading today, which begins with Jesus saying, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Jesus is reminding the people that the mighty works of God and his prophets always seem to be opposed by this world, allowed by God to be attacked, and are often hidden in ways that seem anything but mighty. Jesus then asks what he should compare this generation to. To what he should he compare this group of people that has heard the good news about him, and yet they seem to oppose him at every turn? Well, Jesus compares them to a bunch of whiny, fickle children sitting in a marketplace complaining to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. This is referring to John the baptizer, who did not dance for the people, metaphorically speaking, but rather John came mourning. He came to tell the people that they needed to regard their sin as a serious offense against God and to repent and to throw themselves at the mercy of the Lord. This is how John prepared the way for the Messiah. This is how John prepared the way for the Lord. And while John may have been popular at first, the mighty works that God did through John ended up being opposed by the world, allowed by God to be attacked, and hidden in ways that seemed anything but mighty. John came neither eating nor drinking, but the fickle children of Israel said, he has a demon. And so John was thrown in jail and eventually killed. So then what? Well, Jesus came after John. But still the people were not satisfied. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn, they say. Jesus did not mourn, but rather he danced. Jesus proclaimed the amazing reign and rule of God, delivering the good news of the gospel. The blind were receiving their sight. The lame were walking. The lepers were cleansed. The deaf could hear. The dead were raised. And the poor had good news preached to them. Jesus came to those who were sitting in the ashes of their sin so that he could forgive them and make them alive again. Unlike John, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, Jesus says, but once again, the fickle children of Israel cried out, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus points out how double-minded we can be as humans at times. But even more profound than that, Jesus points out that the kingdom of heaven can suffer violence in the violent attempt to take it by force. After all, we know how this goes for Jesus, don't we? Jesus will be rejected and arrested. He will be asked, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, to which he will reply, it is as you have said. And all for this... He will be handed over to the Romans, beaten, and crucified. 
The mighty works of God through Jesus, just like John, were opposed by the world, allowed by God to be attacked and hidden in ways that seem anything but mighty. Yet Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, the wisdom of God, the mighty works of God are not mighty or wise because we call them mighty or wise. Rather, the wisdom of God, the mighty works of God are wise and mighty because of what they accomplish, because of what they actually do. And so what did John do? John called people to repent of their sins and he pointed them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what did Jesus do? Jesus was that Lamb of God who died to pay the debt of all our sin with his precious blood on the cross. And after God raised him from the dead, Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father where he is currently ruling over all things until the day he promises to come again. Now to the world, both John and Jesus seem to be so easily dismissible. John's head, after all, ends up on a platter at a king's birthday party. And Jesus ends up crucified like a common criminal on the cross. But again, the wisdom of God is not justified by what the world says, but by what God in his wisdom accomplishes. And John accomplished nothing less than preparing the way for Jesus. And Jesus accomplished nothing less than the salvation of the entire world from sin, including your sins and mine, and the assurance that we will live with him forever. The wisdom of God, the mighty works of God do in fact prevail, even in seemingly hidden and weak and foolish ways. But as 1 Corinthians reminds us, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the the weakness of God is stronger than men. Brothers and sisters in Christ, today is Reformation Sunday, and today is not a day that we focus on our wisdom or our works or the achievements of great people like Martin Luther. No, this is a day that we focus on God's wisdom and God's work and the achievements of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, speaking of Luther for a moment, using the language of our gospel reading, God did lead Martin Luther in his day to dance at a time when everyone else was mourning. Remember that in the 16th century, the gospel was all but obscured and guilt-stricken people were perishing in fear, not knowing the good news of the gospel, the good news that Jesus had died to forgive them and to save them. So what did Luther do? He opened the pages of God's word and he pointed people to see and to hear again the mighty works of God. Yet you could say that the deeds that God worked through Luther were opposed by many. Luther had a bounty put on his head. He was excommunicated by Rome. He was was threatened and persecuted. Martin Luther had a great historical impact on the world and still does today. But it didn't take long after the Reformation began, for this movement to completely fracture and splinter and go off into a million different directions, which was not its purpose. Luther himself was frustrated with this during his lifetime. And so it seemed that the mighty works of God, even during the Great Reformation, were once again opposed by this world, allowed by God to be attacked, and hidden in ways that seemed anything but mighty. 
Fast forward 500 years, and let's be honest, our culture today is the exact opposite of the culture in Luther's day. Our culture today does not mourn, metaphorically speaking. People today are not all that interested in singing dirges, so to speak. Just listen and you hear our world playing the flute of self-indulgence, encouraging everyone to live in the way that they see fit. And our culture attempts to soothe people's consciences, but not with the sin-forgiving blood of Jesus Christ, but instead by compromising God's word and saying that you can believe whatever it is you want to believe. That there is no such thing as absolute truth. That what's truly important in life is that in the end, you are happy. And if we're honest, it's tempting for us, the church, to simply go along with what the culture and the world says. So much so that the church then becomes indistinguishable from the rest of the world. But we as Christians must resist the urge to dance to this generation's song. When all we see this world doing is undermining God's word and denying sin and and therefore downplaying the need for Jesus to have died for us in the first place. Instead, what we need is to open the pages of God's word for ourselves so that we then can point others to once again hear and see the mighty works of God so that he can bring about transformation and hope and light, true hope and light to our culture, to our world, through us. Of course, as we do this, we also need to be fully aware and fully expecting that just as with John and Jesus and just as with the Reformation, The works of God will be opposed by this world, allowed by God to be attacked and often hidden in ways that seem anything but mighty. When we as Christians stand on the word of God, we may end up looking weak and foolish to this world. We may even be persecuted for doing so. After all, when you think about it, do you realize how God in his wisdom has sent us Christians into this world, what he arms us with? God, in his wisdom, sends us into this world with nothing but his words written in a book, some water, and some bread and wine. That's it. How much more hidden, how much more weak, how much more foolish can it seem? But do not be fooled. Instead, be assured by Jesus. Hear him today when he says to you, when he says to all of us, wisdom will be justified by her deeds. God's works are justified, not by what the world thinks, not even by what we think, but by what he accomplishes. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. So what does God accomplish? Well, the Holy Spirit came to you in your baptism. He gave you faith to believe in Jesus Christ. He renewed your life. Jesus' own words come to you each and every Sunday and truly absolves your sins, removing your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. 
Jesus' own body and blood are given to you in the bread and wine, strengthening your faith and preserving you until the day when your life ends, whenever that will be, when, at which point, Jesus will come and carry you in his arms into your eternal life. And Jesus promises, he promises, that on the day when he returns again, he will visit your grave and call you out by name so that you will be resurrected as he was resurrected and live eternally in that perfect body with him in the new heavens and the new earth. We will live with him forever. Those are the mighty deeds, the mighty works of God, and that is the wisdom of God that is justified by his deeds. Friends, even if and even when you see God's mighty works opposed in this world, allowed by him to be attacked and hidden in ways that seem anything but mighty, take heart. God's works will prevail. The word will prevail. Jesus will prevail. And since the wisdom of God, who is Jesus Christ, prevails, you are most certainly justified by his deeds in his name. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Speaking of the great and mighty deeds of God, we have the joy now. I invite you to please stand as you are able to confess together those great works that God has done on our behalf using the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> 